we find ourselves back in Luke. And, and, and there's a sense in which we're here. We're, we're, we're finally here. I mean, we took a break from Luke for the last two weeks for the different things that we had going on as a church. But since chapter 9, Jesus has been headed to this moment. And, 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 and we might even be able to argue that, uh, that, that Scripture has been leading up to this moment, not just the book of Luke and the Gospels, but uh, the whole story of God. The whole story of him revealing himself to us here finds this central moment here in this story that was just read. The story that we might be fairly familiar with, and uh, maybe if we've grown up in the church or familiar with the Christian story, it's, it's maybe a little bit too familiar. But it is central. As we in our community groups have been sharing our stories, uh, either your community group has finished that or you're in the middle of it. Uh, and if you're not in a community group, then uh, let me know. would love for you to uh, be a part of one. Uh, but one of the things we're doing is sharing our stories, letting other people know uh, who we are and where we've come from and things that have influenced our lives. And it's really hard to think about how to share your story. Some people know parts of them, right? And you have about an hour, which on one hand is a long time to talk about yourself. Uh, but then it's also like there are a lot of things that are left out. You know, if you've got... 46 years of, of history, you're, you're, you're leaving some things out in a one-hour story. But you have to think about what are the things that are most important. And, and I think about in my own story, uh, I, I can't share my story without uh, referencing May 20th, 2000, this pretty central moment in my life where we got married. And there are a lot of things that uh, are what they are because of our marriage, because we got married on May 20th. So decisions we've made, places we've been, the fact that we have three kids, um, all of these things are really significant, but they flow out of this event uh, in 2000. They, they flow out of the implications of us being married. And my story doesn't really make sense. You wouldn't understand me or my story without that particular event. And, and there are arguably many points in God's story, in the biblical story of redemption, which he's inviting us into that are incredibly significant and that we will miss something if we don't understand those events. But this moment is incredibly key. Again, we've talked about this before. Since chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem for this moment. And we can talk about the importance of the incarnation, that is, God becoming a man as a baby uh, that we celebrate at Christmas time. But that was for the purpose of getting to this moment, getting to his death, actually. And so as we take a look at this story, the story that was, you know, arguably for us a little bit longer passage read, and, and parts of it are familiar, but I hope that you felt some of the weight of it, some of the importance of it. And if you didn't, uh, I encourage you, which is, which is actually likely because it's such a common story, because we, we maybe are, are too familiar with it. But let me encourage you to familiarize yourself with it even more. Spend more time reading this story. And we have a few weeks now until Easter. And so this is a good time to be diving into uh, the death and resurrection story. Yes, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection. But here we're focused on the death of Jesus. And we're going to see two things about this story as we look here in Luke 23. And there are a lot of things that we could talk about, even with the part that was read just now. But... We're going to see both the horror and the promise of this event. The horror and then the promise. Let me, let me pray for us and 
we'll take a look. Lord, we do pray that you would allow us to understand the reality of what we're hearing here, the reality of Jesus's death on the cross, and that it might, as we read and hear about this story from 2,000 years ago, that it might affect us here and now in, in difficult ways, but in ultimately beautiful ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The horror of the cross. We've kind of come to understand the cross as uh, it's just this thing that we're aware of. Even the event is, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and we, and we know that. We don't think regularly about the horror of the cross. I mean, the cross itself is this symbol of, of beauty, even, right? Like in, in a lot of, uh, you can look across and see the church across the street, and there are multiple places where uh, there's a cross, and it's, it's beautiful, right? And we have one right here at our logo with a cross, right? You might have one in jewelry that, that you're wearing. This cross has become this thing that we're familiar with as a symbol. But what we fail to recognize sometimes is that it was this horrific mode of execution. Like to, to, for us to really go into the depths of the reality of this horrible death is, is at times too much. Uh, I mean, Jesus either... Likely naked, but certainly stripped very close to that. Nailed to a cross, executed. Jesus, who was as perfect in, in every way, who did not deserve uh, to be executed. Luke makes a big deal of this throughout the story, but he, again, after the death, uh, has the centurion saying, verse 47, certainly this man was innocent. He did not deserve this horrible death. And, and because we have heard this story for so long, we, we forget that reality of, uh, of how horrible it was. And I was going to read an amazing quote that I'm not going to read. Because I don't know what I did with it. It was horrible. Uh, John Stott in The Cross of Christ has this quote about the fact that the, the, the Romans didn't even like to talk about the cross. And, and, and no Roman citizen, so they, they gave more value, value to Roman citizens. They could not be executed by a cross. And, and he, he quotes some first century historians that talk about, let not the cross even be named on your lips. It is so horrible. It is so shameful. And talk about the fact that the Jews experienced the, the same repulsion at, uh, at the cross and the idea of the cross. Uh, that it's, it's, it's equivalent to being hung. And there's a, a reference from Deuteronomy of cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. That This idea was just beyond the pale. It was beyond what they could even talk about, what they could even name among themselves, the, the horrendous nature of the cross. And, and you can think about this, the, the hours of agony, of, of struggling for breath, of of being mocked in the midst of it. Maybe you've seen, I remember when I was in college and the Passion of the Christ came out and it gave this little bit of a picture, this, this movie with Jim Caviezel, it gave a little bit of the picture of how horrible this thing was. I think it's helpful for us, in fact, to realize and sit in that horror, to sit in the ugliness, to sit in the pain of it. And not to think of it just 
simply as the death of Jesus, though that in itself is incredibly significant. I mean, think about those that are, that are with him, the acquaintances and friends and crowds that are there. I mean, we, we see those that are here in verse 27. There followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. We see this group of women, and it at least includes uh, the, the group of women that, that love Jesus, have spent time with him. They're going to be a part of the resurrection story because they're going to anoint his body with oil to keep the odors down. They're going to be the ones who find him missing, essentially. They're going to be the ones who don't find him, in fact. But then, then we see them again in verses 48 and 49. Now, when the centurion saw, I'm oh, sorry, 48, uh, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. So there are many that are mourning. It's beating their breasts is this, uh, this attitude of lamenting and mourning. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Not sitting back uh, without passion, without care. They're, they're observing this man who they spent time with, who has loved them deeply, uh, even beyond what would certainly have been expected of the time. And uh, they've seen him do amazing things. They've seen it. We've been reading Luke, right? They've seen him heal people and cast out demons to make people whole, to make people flourish and live as they're supposed to live. He has even risen people from the dead. He has calmed the waves and storms. He has shown incredible power. So their expectation is that great things are going to happen because they've already seen great things happen. They know that he is the Christ. Back in chapter 9, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the one that the people of God have looked to for centuries, in fact, to bring salvation to their people. And they didn't picture salvation coming in this way. They pictured salvation coming with success. They didn't picture it coming with failure and loss and death. They had completely different expectations for what was going to happen here. And so you can imagine... How they might feel as they see, oh no, this is really happening. He's going to die. He's not going to come down off the cross. And then to the point where they see that he actually dies. This is horrible. Particularly in light of the expectations that they would have had. Just from being with Jesus. From knowing and understanding who he is and his power. Expectations do make a significant difference. So we bring expectations here. It's helpful for us to... Think about what ours are. But they affect the way that we come to a story or an event, a particular story that, is, that we believe is real and true. So over the last uh, couple of years, I have become an F1 fan, a Formula One fan. Uh, there's a show on Netflix, Drive to Survive. It's a uh, documentary about uh, it follows some of the teams and races uh, over each season. And uh, it, it was interesting enough to me that I actually started watching races uh, when they actually happen. And this is something I've never been interested in before. Uh, I find it really interesting now. So um, bear with me if this doesn't make sense, if you're not a fan. But this uh, last Sunday was the first race of this new season. And there's all this hope for, for some equality or parity between the different teams. Every team has two drivers. And uh, Mercedes has won the, both the team championship and the driver championship for like seven or eight years in a row, so last year, and, and there's this desire to see some competition, really, to, to not have the same people win every time, right? 
And so uh, there's some excitement going into this season with some of the rules changed and uh, things happening differently that, uh, that we're going to see uh, some, some more equality, some, uh, some parity happening. And so a, a team is doing well. It's not Mercedes. And then uh, Red Bull. So the teams are Ferrari, Red Bull, and Mercedes are all doing well, right? And Mercedes, you, you, if you're tired of them winning, they're behind all the, – both their drivers are behind all the Red Bull and Ferrari drivers. You're excited. This is happening. Uh, you're getting toward the end. And there's not a lot that uh, is going to happen, uh, most likely, right? Well, 54 laps into a 57-lap race, the Red Bull, one of the teams, uh, their engine just quits. Fuel pump issue out of the race. No points, no place, nothing. Well, there's one other guy. He's going he, he's gonna to make it, right? Second to last lap. Same issue. He's out. Right? Your expectation is going in. They've done well. They, they, have, uh, they, have, they have pushed well. They've made good times. They've got good drivers. You're devastated if you're a Red Bull fan. You're, you're devastated if you're looking for some, uh, some parity, some uh, equality in, uh, in this event. And it, it just happens in all sports. We, I could talk about some of the things that have happened in March Madness, right? You're really excited. Your, your excitement is higher when you don't expect things to go well. I, 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 I pull for Purdue. I like Purdue. I feel the pain. I feel it. A lot of you are feeling that right now, and I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, it makes it worse that we had high expectations going to that, right? Um, and, and that just pales in comparison to the disappointment, to the frustration, to the expectations that we have in real life. Let's just you know, take it into, you think that uh, life is just going to go well. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to uh, end up in this relationship. I'm going to end up in this place. And when things don't go according to expectation, it can be devastating. And then let's take that up a notch. When, when you expect life to continue for people that you love. When we face death. Like, I, you know, games and sports. And we, we feel those deeply, right? But as a congregation, Fountain Square, Redeemer, we look over the last couple of years at the loss of people, of death that we've been faced with, against expectations. I mean, we're coming up on the, the year anniversary of Ames Nottingham's death. A child, right? That's not our expectation. That's not the way that we expect things to go. It's horrible. It's horrific. Like, do you even use that illustration in a sermon to bring up that kind of pain? Those are the thoughts that I have, right? What we're faced with here is, is horrible, horrific, terrible, beyond even what we experience with death here and now, with our loved ones. This is something unimaginably terrible and horrible. And it's appropriate for us to sit in that reality, to sit in the horrific nature of what is happening here uh, in this story. Sit with the horrific nature of the cross of Christ and the pain and suffering that he experienced. And not only was it death, not only was it the loss of his life, it was this, I mean, it, that part is unimaginable on its own. But in the midst of him experiencing this incredible injustice, the greatest injustice that that has ever occurred, there are people mocking him. They are making fun of him as he is dying this horrible death. They they are laughing about the power that he had. If you 
you saved all these other people. Can't you save yourself? They have this sign above his head, the king of the Jews. And and it's supposed to be sarcastic. It's supposed to be ironic because he is dying. The king is dying. And, And then one of the criminals says to Jesus, even as the soldiers and others mock him, Uh, He says, are you not the Christ? Verse 39, save yourself and us. That'd be great too, and us, right? Get a little something from ourselves. If if you're actually able to do this, save yourself, but also save us. They are mocking him as he is dying. In the midst of this, it it makes it 10 times worse, right? Like if you you do something uh, that is bad, if you make a mistake, we all know that it's, it's way worse if other people see the mistake. If other people observe you, you're walking down the street and you trip and fall. Anybody see that? Like, it's not that big a deal to trip and fall, right? But if somebody else sees you trip and fall, then, then it's humiliating, right? And, and there are other mistakes that we've made in life that would be shameful for us to share even about the experience. Even let other people in on it. This is the, the nature of the horror that Jesus experienced here. And, and we need to be slow and deliberate to sit in the reality of the death of Jesus Christ, of the horror of the cross, of these passages that Becky read, that this is a terrible, terrible thing. And yes, we know. We know about the resurrection. We know that Easter is coming. We talked about the lunches, right? We, we know the rest of the story. But sometimes we want to move so quickly to that. We, we think that life is about success. We don't sit in the, the, the horror of this reality, of the fact that our king, and we sing about Jesus as the king, our hope, the one who reigns and rules over all things, he went to suffer and die, to loss, to failure, that that's what he experienced. And that he actually even invites us to take up our cross daily and follow him. That he sets us as a pattern, not just as something that he did for us, though absolutely that is true, but is actually a pattern for us. That we, who live in this culture of success, of winning, and put ultimate value on that, are called actually to loss, to suffering, and to, to failure at times. That's not what we often think that we signed up for if we're followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, I'm not sure that's what I want to sign up for, right? We should sit in this reality. And the fact that it is so horrific, that it is so terrible, and the more and more that we grasp that, sit in that reality, my, again, encouragement over the next number of weeks is actually to do just that. And, and we're inviting our congregation to join with Redeemers for their Good Friday service, uh, to sit in that reality. It's a beautiful service that I think uh, captures some of the drama of what is happening here. Um, And my encouragement is to do that on your own, to do that uh, by joining that service. But as we sit in that horror, as we sit in the depth of its brokenness, of its injustice, it actually helps us to understand the magnitude of the promise and the hope that comes for us. Because this event that Jesus came to live, to die, and then to raise, rise from the dead, this is for us an incredible promise. 
And we see it happening even as Jesus suffers and dies. The, the reality is, though, that that horror illuminates the power of the promise. Because it's so broken, it's so unjust, it's so wrong, it's so horrible, it is actually able to cover all of the brokenness and mess of our own lives, of what we experience in this world. He's stepping into it. He's able to sympathize with us, and he's able to cover our own brokenness. It's only by understanding the depth of his own pain and suffering and death that we're able to find hope in our own stories, with our own brokenness and mess, that there's nothing beyond his promise and forgiveness. The first part of the promise is just that, it's forgiveness. Verse 34, we see that as he's experiencing this, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's this pattern that Jesus has of offering forgiveness even to those who are in the process of creating the greatest injustice ever. He's looking to the Father for forgiveness there. And then we see this interaction that he has with, uh, with the, the criminals, one who's questioning him and mocking him and saying, yeah, but if you do have that power, you know, include me on that salvation too. Come down and save us. And the other one, though, rebukes him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The, the, the wisdom that this criminal has in this moment, he's saying what, what we're experiencing, our death is actually justified. It's actually justified. So he's recognizing his own brokenness, the the depth of his own problems, the depths of the horror that he has probably caused other people that he and this other criminal have caused. He's not saying, "I, I don't deserve this. He's actually saying, yes, we deserve this. And yet he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's confessed this truth about Jesus's innocence and his guilt And he's asked that that Jesus would remember him when he comes into his kingdom. There's a number of things that he is uh, assuming there that are are evident in these statements. He, he, one, is seeing the promise of forgiveness from Jesus. He's guilty. Jesus isn't. He's recognizing that Jesus has the opportunity to offer forgiveness. He's recognizing that there's something to come after death, that there is a kingdom, that there is a, a paradise that comes, and that Jesus is the king and in control of it. So that Jesus would actually be able to remember him, to to offer the invitation of coming into paradise with him. So that when Jesus gives that promise, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He is responding to this confession of what is true and offering this criminal forgiveness. This criminal has this clear picture of the forgiveness that is offered and the fact that that draws him into paradise with Jesus. This incredible promise, even as he's in the midst of this horror, and, and, and the promise all the more real because of what he's experiencing in that moment, and that Jesus is able to do something about it. And, and, and that's this clear understanding that he has. He can't do anything about it. He's about to die himself. There's nothing he can do to earn Jesus's favor. There's nothing he can do to to put himself in God's good graces. He doesn't have any time left to do that. And he's not even going to turn and trust in Jesus and then be able to get his life together because his life is over. This is this incredible 
picture of the grace of Jesus. There's nothing that we bring to the table. There's nothing that we're able to do to earn God's forgiveness and favor. That it is only by this event, by, by Jesus having the wrath that we deserved, we're the guilty ones, we're the criminals, that the wrath that we deserve is poured out upon the innocent one, upon Jesus instead. It is all his work. We cannot get it together. And all of the things that we experience, and, and we're experiencing all kinds of shame as we think about our brokenness and our sin and the things that we've done in our lives. We're thinking about it laid out there in front of others, in front of Jesus. And what he's saying is he is able to forgive that. He's able to forgive it all. And that it is only by this act of him experiencing the wrath of God that we're able to experience forgiveness. This is, goes back to the confession that we confessed earlier. I'll, I'll look back again. New City Catechism. You can find it online. There's apps. It's free. There's commentary on this, but it's uh, incredibly uh, encouraging. It's talking about the death of the Redeemer, but it is, why was it necessary for the Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Because death is the punishment for sin. So Christ does this event. He experiences this horror. Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. His substitutionary, he, he substitutes himself for us, his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. These are the promises that come because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do, not because of our ability to be good Christians or to get it together, because we can't, but our ability to trust in him. The last bit of the promise is not only forgiveness and the offer of paradise of future to come, but that's all ultimately in order that we might have relationship with him. Here's the beauty of what is happening here. Forgiveness isn't the end in and of itself. Forgiveness is that we might be clean in order that we might be in relationship with our God. And this is constantly the reality. Old Testament and New Testament, God wants relationship with his people. And he provides ways for unholy people who have rebelled against God to be in relationship with a holy God. So he gives us sacrifices in the Old Testament that the people of God can come before and he gives high priests and the high priests once a year go into the Holy of Holies. They go through the curtain that divides the presence of the people of God to God's presence represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And it, once a year, the high priest can enter through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, that is, that the sins of the people would be forgiven. It's this incredible picture of God providing for his people and the, the sacrifices that were necessary. But we know that here, the once and for all ultimate sacrifice is happening with Jesus. And what happens when, when that occurs? Look at verse 44. This incredibly powerful thing is happening so that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So basically from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there's complete darkness over the land. It's this picture of the power of what is happening. And when, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Very short little verse here, uh, short words, incredibly significant. The, the temple curtain, which is this thick, massive curtain, a part of coming into the presence of God and, and receiving 
forgiveness of sin so that there could be relationship with him. It's torn in two so that there is no longer the need for a high priest because Jesus is that ultimate high priest. Hebrews 9 and 10 talk about this beautiful reality. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus poured out in this moment on the cross, we have confidence to go into the holy, the holy places. That is where God is. By the new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. What's he saying here? The writer of Hebrews is telling us that the curtain was torn in two by the power of Jesus so that we might enter into the Holy of Holies, that we might have relationship with our creator. That is the promise here. And we don't feel worthy. If you're honest about yourselves, you're honest about the mess in your own life, you, you don't feel worthy to be in relationship with him. And yet his experience on the cross here paid the penalty so that we might actually have relationship with him. The forgiveness of our sin is so that we can be in relationship with him so that we can celebrate and be his sons and daughters, a part of his family and have all of the benefits that come with that, including the promise of paradise with him forever. All because of what he did on the cross, not based on anything that we're able to do. So we just trust and we look to him. We say with the criminal, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom because you're able, because of the horror of what you experienced, able to cover all of my brokenness and all of my sin and all of my shame and draw me into a relationship with you. Let's pray.